What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia here with Schwan Humes for episode 140. We're getting up there, man. 140 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Schwan, why should everyone know how you're doing today, sir? Oh, not too bad. Got done taking uh, my youngest trick-or-treating for a little bit, so I'm just glad to be inside. It's getting chilly. It's getting chilly. I was just tired. There's a lot of walking today. You only you only took, took the youngest? Uh, the other the other daughter is out with her friend somewhere. Uh, the one of the other ones went with me and the youngest, and then my other daughter went to go hang out with some relatives at a. They had a little get together that we went to earlier. So we we went trick or treating in two neighborhoods, and then everybody kind of went their own way afterwards. True, true. All right, man. Let's talk about some MMA because we have quite a bit to talk about today. We're going to look forward. Most of our conversation is going to be about UFC 244, which understandably is the biggest piece of news out of the industry this week. We got some fights to preview to talk about some ramifications of this BMF title. So let's kind of jump right into it. And let's start with this main event here, man. We got Nate Diaz versus Jorge Masvidal for the BMF belt. Uh, and there's quite a bit to talk about with this situation here. I want to talk about it from a business standpoint and a uh, strategy standpoint. Let's start with the strategy aspect first, man. Talk to me about this fight and what do you see between these two welterweights when they step into the octagon on Saturday? Uh, it's really It really comes down to me about how, in, how engaged uh, Jorge Masvidal stays in the fight. That's really what's cost him early in his run in the MMA and early in his run in the UFC. He would be engaged and then he would kind of take his foot off the pedal and then he kind of just coast mostly because he felt the guys he was fighting weren't a threat to him and once he felt that the guy wasn't an actual threat to do harm to him then it's like mentally he would kind of check out he'd do just enough to not get finished just enough to not get overwhelmed but not enough to win rounds and recently in his past few fights he's gotten away from that he started being more of a finisher he's been more had a bigger sense of urgency in his fights he's been a little bit tighter in his offense and he's been a little bit more consistent in how much offense he's generating. The only thing, the only question for me is a lot of these wins have come fairly quickly. You know, the win over Darren Till was a quick knockout. The win over Cow- Cowboy a couple years ago was a fairly, fairly quick fight. It wasn't, a, you know, full three round fight. And his knockout against Ben Askren was once again, a, a really quick knockout. So you, you don't know that throughout the whole the, the whole five rounds that he's going to stay mentally engaged. I feel like he's got the better boxing. I feel like he's got the better wrestling. I feel like he transitions ranges better, but like, as I said before, he's had a tendency to get frustrated or to just kind of slow up a little bit in his pace and his intensity throughout the length of a fight when he doesn't just blow somebody out. He'll usually put something on him, And then once he feels he kind of got him under control, he starts picking and choosing his spots. And against someone like Nate Diaz, Nate Diaz isn't a guy who kind of takes his foot off the, cel- the the accelerator. Even if he's not technically as good as Masvidal, especially in the in the wrestling and the all-round striking range, the fact of the matter is he's a guy who stays engaged from the opening bell to the last bell, whether that be defensively, offensively, or on counters. He doesn't really take time off. He doesn't really give you spots to rest. He doesn't really let you off the hook. And just from a mental and a strategical point of view, you could, I could see, my, I could see a fight going where Masvidal him start out at a high pace, but at some point Masvidal starts kind of dipping and having valleys, and then coming back up and then having another valley. I expect Nate Diaz to be consistent throughout the whole, throughout the whole length of the fight, and that that's really what I think would be the 
the biggest difference. Skill-wise, I don't, I don't really think it's that close except for pure grappling. Actual skills and what I've seen from both guys as far as the, the cleanliness of their skills and the technique and the variety of their skills, I would say Masvidal has a huge advantage. But Masvidal hasn't always been, like I said, he hasn't always been consistent, and he always, hasn't always been a guy who stayed mentally engaged as far as his intensity and the amount of, the amount of, the amount of activity he has in a fight. And that's where I feel that Nate Diaz can get him because he's going to make you fight. Even if he's losing the fight defensively, he's going to make you fight. He's going to make you fight the whole five rounds. And, and I'm not sure that Masvidal is really prepared for that. So what I, interesting thing about Masvidal is that I always wonder, I feel like the fights that he loses, he takes his foot off the gas and he just doesn't get the job done. Um, I look back, probably the most, the statement win or statement loss that kind of stands out to me when I look at that is the Al Iaquinta fight from a couple years back. He could have been in the talks for a lightweight title uh, shot if he did not lose that bout there, but he just seemingly took his foot off the gas. Even the fight against Gilbert Melendez back in Strike Force years ago. Is this going to be a problem on Saturday, and do you see Nate turning on the gas against him at some point in time? Well, I, I don't I don't think Nate really turns it on so much as he just is consistent. Nate isn't Nate Nate isn't even the better athlete in this fight. Masvidal's a better athlete, probably the bigger puncher, probably the better wrestler, probably the better all-around striker. As I said, the, the main thing that separates Nate Diaz is the fact that his mental toughness, his ability to maintain a pace, and his ability, ability to build on a pace. Masvidal very rarely builds on a pace. He usually sets a high pace or comes out hard and blows people out or he puts so much damage on them that those guys are kind of hesitant to take advantage of the openings he gives them so he can kind of cruise. When he's put damage on these guys and they haven't folded up and they've continued to kind of pick away at them, they've continued to press, their work rate usually overwhelms whatever, whatever quality work he's doing. It happened against Stephen Thompson. It obviously, there were some technical issues there, but it happened against Stephen Thompson, happening against Damian Maya. It happened against, like you said, Ally Quinta. If he doesn't feel like he's under specific duress, he tends to start rolling with shots, getting defending takedowns, but not really countering them, defending shots, but not really countering them. Uh, using his footwork and and really just kind of slowing the pace of the fight down. And if you're slowing the pace of the fight down and the judges see your opponent constantly pressing and they're upping their work rate and they're upping the amount of volume they're throwing, it gives the impression that they're taking control of the fight because for some reason you you were you had had a big lead and now all of a sudden you're not punching back. Now all of a sudden you're strictly defensive. Now all of a sudden instead of making them punishing them for a missed takedown, you're just getting away and, and creating space. Technically, they're not doing anything to you, but throughout the the image of the fight is that something's turning the fight because now you don't feel as confident or as willing to engage and then with the intensity or the variety of attacks that you had before. And so that's 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 what it really comes down to me. As far as pure skills, I don't really see this fight being particularly even, but as far as somebody who's going to put a lot of mental pressure on somebody consistently, put a lot of physical pressure on somebody, whether they're winning or losing the fight in any position. Nate Diaz is really his whole style, his fighting style and his approach to fighting is more is built for these these marathon type fights, not really the sprints of a three round fight. And and that's where I think it's going to happen. I think Jorge will come out to an early lead, maybe even win the first one or two rounds, but they're still going to be competitive. Nate's still going to be pushing a pace and it's going to be up to Jorge to not lose focus and to not overextend himself cardiovascularly so that he can maintain so that he can have something left in the third fourth and fifth round now if now people act like nate's untouchable but the fact of the matter is nate diaz has been hurt before 
He's been dropped before. He's been knocked out before. He's not a guy who can just walk through all sorts of punishment like Nick, Nick Diaz. But unlike Nick, he's a little bit more defensively sound, a little bit more active with his jab, uses his range a little bit better, uses a little bit of a variety of punches. And that's what usually breaks guys down because of his consistency. He doesn't slow. He maintains his pace, and when you start slowing, that's when he starts building. It's what he did to Conor McGregor in the first fight. It's what he almost did to Conor McGregor in the second fight. It's what he did to Michael Johnson in their fight. It's up to Jorge Masvidal to find a way that if he can't put Nate away quickly, which most likely he won't, to find a way to pick his spots and use his footwork and use his counterpunching and use his physical, his attributes and his wrestling to slow the pace and control Nate, not allow Nate to build momentum. Because as soon as he starts building momentum and getting the crowd behind him, that's when the fight's going to turn. So it's up to Jorge to use a full array of his skills to, to not allow that to happen, to slow the pace of the fight down. Let me ask you this. What needs to happen for this fight? To, well, not we all know what needs to happen at this fight for this fight to end in the stoppage. But what type of stoppage victory do you see happening most likely, and why? Um, I'm not really sure. I, I I tend to think that I would like to say that I would like to say that Masvidal could get a knockout. And I really I really believe he can. The thing about it is, I think Nate's a little bit more defensively sound than the last couple of guys he's been fighting. And I also think that given Nate's penchant for getting finding submissions, especially in scrambles, that Jorge might be a little bit hesitant to really put the coffin nails in or to really overextend himself with his with his um, his offense, just because he doesn't want to give Nate an opportunity to grab on something or Nate to get into a scramble where Nate can find a submission or get on top and work him over and then create a submission. I really think the best bet for for the win. For the win for Masvidal would be a fight, an aggressive but a smart fight where he's mixing in takedowns, he's he's using a jab, he's using footwork, and he's just basically disrupting Nate Diaz's flow and his rhythm so that he can't ever build the momentum he wants. He can't put five, six, seven shots together. He can't pin him up against the cage. He can't make him fight at this high pace. He needs to alternate between what he's doing to control the pace of the fight. I don't know that I really expect a finish from Masvidal just because... Nate, one, Nate's not really easily finished. And two, I tend to think as the fight goes along, Masvidal's work rate's going to kind of slip and he's going to start picking his spots and, and looking to pot shot a little bit more. Um, his best shot at finishing would be, would be a knockout. As far as Nate goes, I think really Nate, I think Nate's going to be about, if he wins, it's going to be a battle of attrition. It might be ending a submission, but it's going to be because of the constant work rate he's doing, attacking the body, attacking the legs, constantly throwing hands constantly forcing Masvidal to move around the cage, which will exhaust him and then put him in a position where he'll get stuck and he won't be able to get out of submission. Not because he technically can't get out of it, but physically he's just so worn down and so exhausted he doesn't have anything left to defend it and much less escape it. True, true. And so let's talk about um, what this fight means to both individuals here. Uh, how big of a moment is this fight, in your opinion? To me, when I look at this fight, this is all about leverage. These two guys were in the welterweight division that was being ridiculously held up by Kamaru Usman and Kobe Covington, who are now booked um, at UFC 245. They aren't even as big of a draw as this fight here. And then you have Conor McGregor, who could have immediately inserted himself back into the welterweight uh, picture just by uttering a few words or sending out a tweet. These two guys looked around and they said, you know what, we're going to do this ourselves and we're going to make, we're going to book this fight and we're going to put the UFC in a position where they have to make this fight. And that's exactly what happened. 
they leverage their um their they they leverage the, their popularity into what is easily going to be the biggest fight of the year. I think that this fight alone is bigger than anything that they have to offer on UFC 245. And there's three title fights on that card. This is a massive moment for a couple of different reasons. I'm actually writing a piece about this that will probably go up tomorrow talking about that. But uh, how big of a moment, in your opinion, is this uh, situation here? Well, it's twofold because one instance, it works against the organization because it shows that if a, if fighters fighters can get the fans' attention and create enough demand and create enough interest, that the organization will fold to what the fans and the media and and basically the money wants. As much as they like to say that we're not the the fighters don't control us, the fans don't control us. At the end of the day, the the UFC's job, Dana White's job, is to make the UFC bigger and put them in a position to generate as much money as possible. So if that means giving the fans what they want, then that's what's going to happen. So in one instance, it's a win for the fighters because they're saying, hey, as much as they say they have control, as much as they say they have power, the fact of the matter is if you do what you're supposed to do and you and you create interest and you continue to win and you're able to, to build yourself a fan base with your consistency in and out of the cage, the UFC is going to fold, Dana White is going to fold, and they're going to do what you want and give you what you want because you're giving them what they want. The thing that works against the fighters is all these fighters who keep on complaining about, you know, oh, well, you know, the uh, the UFC didn't give me enough attention. They didn't push me hard enough. They didn't put me in the opportunities to succeed. They didn't write enough articles about me. They didn't, they didn't give me interviews. The fact of the matter is nobody got Jorge Masvidal interviews. He created his own interest. He created his own brand. He created his own following, partly by being an interesting person, partly by winning. So all these people keep saying the UFC is not giving me a chance. I'm a minority. I'm a woman. I'm whatever. The UFC was basically telling Nate Diaz he wasn't a needle mover. Dana White said that like a year and a half ago. Now a year and a half, now a year and a half, two years later, what is Dana White doing? Giving Nate the money he wants and the fight he wants and the attention he wants and the position on the card that he wants. And Jorge Masvidal was never a needle mover. He was never a guy who was pushed by the UFC. Who, when has Jorge Masvidal ever been pushed by the UFC? I've never, never seen this push that he's got. He's never been pushed. He's never been put on main events. He's never been given big-name fighters. Not really. He's never been given established stars. Yet here he is, going to make a career-high payday and headline a main event with no title on the line. So then it starts making you look kind of funny at these other people who keep saying, well, you know, the UFC just won't, they won't give me enough push. They're, they're shortchanging me. They're not giving me the opportunity. Who's been shortchanged more than Nate Diaz and, and Jorge Masvidal? They were afterthoughts. In two organizations, they were afterthoughts. And here they are getting what we, for most people is a career high payday and they're headlining an event with no legitimate title on the line. So a fighter can no longer use that excuse, well, it's Dana White's fault. It's it's the fans' fault. It's the sexist fault. It's it's the racist fault. You you can't really sell that argument. You can it's still legitimate because it stands because there are roadblocks that hinder the development of fighters as far as becoming stars. But the biggest thing that Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal did is they they built fan bases based off who they are, being available, speaking to anybody and everybody as soon as they wanted to talk to them, and not going with the company line. And most importantly. They won the biggest fights they had to win. Everybody keeps forgetting about that. Felice Herrick, when she complained about Paige Van Zandt, oh, Paige gets all these victories. You had a chance to knock Paige Van Zandt off. And if you did, you would have got Paige Van Zandt's spot. But you didn't. And that's why you didn't get her spot. What did Nate Diaz do when he got Conor McGregor? 
He beat him. What did he, what did he do when he had Anthony Pettis? He beat him. What did Jorge Masvidal do when he got the golden boy, Darren Till? Beat him. What did he do when he had the other golden boy, Ben Askren, with all the hype behind him? He knocked him out in, like, what, five seconds? Not only did they talk and show personality and show independence and go out on their own, they won the fights they needed to win when they needed to win them. The, a lot of people complaining about not getting a push, they lost important fights. They, they, they kind of fell in line. They didn't show personality. And they're complaining about the UFC is not pushing me. You ain't giving nothing, them nothing to push. This is yet another instance of somebody building their own brand and establishing themselves as a financial benefit to other fighters and a financial benefit to themselves by doing what it takes to win and doing what it takes to separate themselves from the crowd. Derek Lewis did it. Nobody cares about heavyweights. He, he turned himself into a star. Jorge Masvidal has done it. Nate Diaz has done it. It's been done before. Now you just need to start looking at these fighters and asking, what aren't you doing? Why can't you do what these guys are doing? Because they've been given no more of a push than anybody else in the UFC. So you said a couple of different, th- different things there that I agree with. Yes, these are two individuals who have never really gotten much of a push from the UFC. In many ways, Nate at least has gotten the opposite of such. And Jorge, Jorge has kind of come into his own as of recently. But the thing that I think that stands out about him is that he seems to be one of those people that never changes. He's always is who he is. And I appreciate that. And I see the fans are really appreciating that now as well, too. This is a big opportunity for both men. And it's big for them because they are doing it together and they're doing it without, in my opinion right now, doing it without Conor McGregor is important. Because this fight right now, I believe, puts him on the same platform as Connor. Connor's coming off of multiple losses. He's coming off of, you know, dealing with these two uh, sexual assault allegations. He's coming off of multiple other uh, instances of um, criminal and violent actions. So his cachet as a big name in the UFC is dwindling. He may not want to admit it. It may not really be much of a talking point uh, in a lot of different media outlets, but his his ability to be a big major cash draw on his merit alone is dwindling. And to see Masvidal and Diaz position themselves to be as big a draw as he is without Khabib, without Connor, without anything else on his card is important to him. It's important to him at a time when the UFC is looking for more men and women who can stand out like this. But the same thing, the same thing happened though. Like Connor had a fan base, but he had a fan base. He didn't play by the rules. He did his own thing. He was consistent in, in who he was and how he came across. But most importantly, he won big fight. And everybody keeps people, a lot of people who, who criticize these guys, they're not winning big fights. They get to the point of winning a big fight and then they lose. They get to the point of winning the big fight and then they lose. You know, or they just like, you know, like we said before, oh, I just fight whoever Dana wants. I'm a company man or, you know, oh, blah, blah. it's like, I'm not saying you got to be fake, but there are certain things that there's a certain price that Masvidal's had to pay, Diaz has had to pay, even Conor McGregor has had to pay to get where they are. A lot of fighters aren't willing to pay that price. They're not willing to do all the shows. They're not willing to possibly piss off their promoter or their managers. They're not willing to take a hard stand against USAD or whatever. They're not willing to say and do these things. The minute there's a chance to attack another fighter, they do. 
The minute there's a chance to fold, they fold. The minute there's a chance to try and kiss up to the owners or promoters, that's what they do. So it's like you're playing the game. It's not getting you what you want. Why don't you try playing another game? You can't tell me you keep doing the same thing that's been resulting in failure for the past two to seven years and then tell me that it's somebody else's fault that you're failing. It's not. You're not making the necessary sacrifices. You're not winning the necessary fights to put you in position because if Jorge Masvidal doesn't beat Ben Askren, he's not in this position. If he doesn't beat Darren Till, he's not in this position. If he wasn't who he was, he's not in this position. He has an interesting storyline to go along with these wins. He has some interesting character strengths and flaws to go along with these wins. Nate Diaz has some interesting character flaws and strengths to go along with these wins. That, that, you know, I'm not saying other guys don't get held down. But a lot of people keep making excuses and then crying when other people who don't make these excuses make things happen. And there's only so long, there's only so, like you said, there can be racial issues, there can be sex, sexist issues or misogynist issues. But at a certain instant, it comes down to the fighter. And in the case of Nate Diaz, the UC was actually saying, you were not a draw. We're not giving you this fight. And he worked his way back into it. How many fighters at the UFC openly saying, this person is not this, this person is not that? They're saying the UFC is holding you back. They're not holding back. They're just, they, they just don't have an opinion on you. They actually told Nate Diaz, you're not a needle mover. We don't need you. Sit, Dana White, sit in the corner until you're ready to fight. And now look at him, paying up and putting him in, making up a belt and giving him a spotlight main event position with no real championship, no real title, no real contendership match on the line. So let's talk about one more angle with these two guys before we move on to the rest of the card. Win and lose, what do you do with both of these individuals? Um, in my opinion, I think a winner, you know, they can easily jockey for a number one, um, a number one contendership position uh, over Tyron Woodley for a fight against the welterweight champion coming out of UFC 245. They could easily be put themselves in that position. Um, they can easily make the Conor, the Conor McGregor money fight if he wins in January. There's a lot of options for whoever comes out of here at either winner or loser. What would you do with either one of them? Well, in the case of Nate Diaz, he he said that he doesn't want to be fighting. He he's not. He's about making money. He's about having big events. I don't think a title is a, spe- a special concern to him. I don't think rankings are a special concern to him. I think the biggest thing is to expand his brand, to give himself the biggest platform to perform on. And to fight guys who are coming, who are going to give the fight that he wants, and give the fans the kind of fight they want, and have the kind of character and personality that's going to sell fights. I think he's beyond the. I'm trying to fight for a title. I'm trying to improve my ranking. I'm trying to prove something to the hardcore fans. I think the only thing he's trying to do is please his fans. And if the hardcores go along with it, great. If the casuals go along with it, great. But he's not out to do anything except take care of himself take care of his fans, and make the most of his moment in the sun. But given his wins over Connor and what that did for his stardom, he has more options. A lot of guys will want to fight Nate Diaz. Only difference is Nate Diaz is in the driver's seat now. He Win or lose, he doesn't have to take anybody's fight because he's got a good enough fan base that they're going to support him. Unless he, Even if he gets knocked out cold, they're still going to support him. So I don't think Nate Diaz is falling in line for anybody. I think he's going to try and find another big name to fight, someone with an exciting style, somebody that's going to excite the fans, and excite him in regards to the matchup. Jorge Masvidal, if I'm him, he might be in a position where he might try to fight for the title. He's actually fairly close to a title fight, to be quite honest. After beating Askren and beating Till, 
he's really maybe he after this fight he might actually be in position to fight for the UFC championship, and I think he might want to because if he beats Nate Diaz, he'll be the biggest star he could possibly be right now. Only thing else that could help him legitimize him is having that world title. Nate doesn't really need it because of how long he's been in the sport, the fact that he's related to Nate Nick Diaz, and the fact that he beat Conor McGregor back when Conor McGregor was like on his prime and hadn't been beaten in years. So he's kind of cemented himself and established himself as a brand and as a star. Masvidal really is kind of hot for the moment, but he hasn't he hasn't really established himself to the point where if he went on a two or three fight losing streak, he still have his fan base, you know, knocking on Dana's door trying to get him in position to get fight for a title or get a big name fight. You know, people are still begging to fight Nate Diaz. The only people who are trying to fight Jorge is Leon Edwards. We got Dustin Poirier who wants to fight Nate Diaz, and God knows who else wants to fight Nate Diaz. So if Jorge wins, I think he should just sit out and wait for a title fight. He had three very high-profile wins. I'm not. I'm not giving anybody else. I'm not letting anybody use me as a stepping stone. You either give me the title, or I'm just going to sit here and chill out until then. Because I know he's getting paid very well to take to fight this fight, and so there's no reason for he. They're not going to be able to sit him out and make him wait. He can actually afford to pull a Tyrone Woodley. I'm going to wait till y'all give me the champion. I'll go and beat him, and then we can talk business. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of opportunities for both of the winners. Here and I think that you're right when it comes to big money opportunities. I think big money opportunities is what's next for either individual. And this fight really shows that the UFC titles aren't worth anything. Maybe you know they're worth your legacy, and they can you can even say that they're worth a bigger paycheck uh, in some ways. But if you can jockey for a position that allows you to do things like this right here, um. You don't need the belt to be able to do so. These guys, for, the UFC didn't have to make a belt for them. The UFC didn't have to get The Rock involved in this situation. Here. And all these things are happening just because these two guys got popular and got hot at the right time and have leveraged that to a main event opportunity. That That's massive. And there's nothing but um, big opportunities in the future for both of these individuals, win, lose, or draw. Well, but, but that's, the, that's the thing about it. Once again... The UFC is caving to what the fans want. They're caving to a fan base that spread and got bigger and forced the issue. A lot of these fighters just don't have fan bases to make that kind of stand. They need the belt. It's the same thing in boxing. They, Floyd Mayweather didn't need a belt. Manny Pacquiao doesn't need a belt. On a lower level, Canelo doesn't. On an even lower level, Adrian Boner doesn't. They get paid because people hate them or love them so much. They are going to show up to any fight they had to watch them get beat up or watch them win. Most fighters do not have fan bases strong enough. That's why I always say you can't say the UFC is holding these guys back because they don't even have fan bases in their own group. Amanda Nunes isn't a huge star in Brazil. She's not a huge star among the gay, the gay and lesbian community. Tyrone Woodley's not huge in the black community. You know, Cain Velasquez was not big in the Latin American community. He just wasn't. Was he popular? Sure, but was he like, was he like the equivalent of a Mayweather, the equivalent of a Canelo? Never. If they had those fan bases, they could come to the table and make the UFC talk. They don't have them. And what's worse, these people aren't winning the fights they need. They're winning impressive fights, but not winning the fights they shouldn't win. They're not winning the big, high-profile fights, and they're not doing enough on their own outside the cage to build their fan base and to create enough questions and create enough interest where people are going to keep them in those contender fights or keep them in the conversations for big-name, high-profile fights. They're not doing those things. So it's like 
the belts always matter. To 90, 95% of the fighters, the belts matter. There's a rare 5% who don't need belts. George St. Pierre, Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz, Conor McGregor. Jorge Masvidal still needs a belt. A belt would still do him a great favor. But for the, that other 5%, they don't need it because they've won the fights and they've done the work outside of the cage to make themselves independent properties without the belt. The belt is just something extra. They don't need it. it it's just like a, it's like wearing a watch for you and me. Something nice to have. I don't need it. Fine without it. Yeah, I mean, everyone's basically fine without it, and they're proving their point here. Someone who isn't fine is the one and only Darren Till, who's having issues getting to his fight on Saturday. Um, have we seen any updates on where he is when it comes to being able to make this fight? I haven't seen any updates. I I was very disappointed to hear all this stuff. I'm sure there's a lot of other situations going on. There might be a bigger story to him. But, you know, even when you heard the stories he had about some of the issues he had training and with hotel rooms and stuff, it just seems like a lack of professionalism. Like, he became too big too fast. And maybe a lack of professionalism and a lack of maturity is going to shortcut his career before any lack of talent or lack of skill will. You know, uh, not making weight in fights, having to spend a whole training camp trying to make weight, having issues with the hotel room and then issues with the authorities. It's just, it's just a sign. I mean, a lot of people say fighting's warriors and we're do something that most people can't do. But even when doing something that most people can't do, whether it's going to boxing ring, fighting in the cage, competing as a world-class athlete, going to war, whatever it is, there's a certain amount of professionalism in your preparation and how you live your life and how you prepare yourself and how you maintain yourself that allows you to do those things. It's starting to look like Darren Till has not has not has, doesn't have a team around him that takes care of things, and he's incapable of taking care of himself. Now, if there's some kind of other story to this, I'll apologize for it. But even if there is another story for it, this is something his team should have taken care of. This is a big, huge, and hugely important card. How do you mess up your chance to possibly be in it? Because even if he shows up, how rested is he going to be? How good is the weight cut going to be? Where's his mentality going to be at? How's his energy going to be? We don't know. You can't be dealing with all this stuff last second before a fight with a top three opponent who needs a big win to get to reestablish himself on one of the biggest cards of the last two or three years. You can't be coming in with this kind of nonsense last second like this. It, it just smacks of unprofessionalism. And that's the kind of thing that will ruin a fighter before any sort of lack of talent or lack of skill will. And it seems like it's it's... It's a. It's gotten another fighter. It ruined great fighters before. It seemed like it's ruined another potentially great fighter. Let's talk about this fight, though. Um, I, it, it's pretty much not happening as of right now. I still see it on a lot of fight cards slated. I haven't heard anything different about this weekend's um, call time changing. But from a strategy standpoint, what did you see happening in, in this fight between um, Gastelum and Till? Did Gastelum show you something different in this fight from uh, with Adesanya? That makes you think that this bout here against Darren Till would have gone more in his favor? Well, first, on Till's part, the theory is that Till's moving up, and it's going to help his chin, it's going to help his cardio, it's going to help his ability to recover from punishment, and that's going to allow him to use the full extent of his striking abilities for as far as his length, his 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 long his long-range weapons, his ability to bully guys in the clinch, his ability to make the most of the power he has and his ability to take punishment from guys on the counter in the return. 
I don't know that's pot. I don't know that's true. He's taken a. He's taken a, even in his wins. He took a fair amount of damage, and he's had some pretty bad punishing fights at welterweight as well as the damage he's done to his body. So I don't know that moving up in weight is instantly going to fix any issues he has as far as cardio goes, as far as ability to absorb punishment. And a lot of his skill set depends on him having to absorb punishment. He's not very defensively slick. As far as his offense is, it's not particularly well-structured or um, deceptive. He's, In my opinion, he's pretty obvious as far as his offense. He's pretty easy to counter. And while he's a skill fighter, he leans a lot more on his length and his physical, his physicality and his durability to get things done, much more so than any sort of refined skill or masterful technique or masterful strategy. Um, I'm not super high on Kelvin Gastelum. I, I never thought he was the greatest fighter in the world. I thought, I thought in a lot of ways he's like Darren Till, a guy who gets by on physicality, aggression, and volume. I will admit that against Israel Azdanya, he showed a little bit more poise as far as working himself into spots and not just trying to force himself into spots and get countered or get blown out, similarly to what uh, Robert Whitaker did. He worked his way in position, and when he got in position, he stayed in the positions he needed to stay in to to punish Israel Adesanya and to push him. Once again, his lack of defense and his lack of, lack of variety in his striking and his overall mixed martial arts game ended up having him be a step behind Israel Adesanya and ended up with him taking a lot of punishment and eventually losing that fight. But as far as people who've shown improvement against a certain caliber of opponent, I will say that Kelvin Gastelum, though those improvements aren't huge, he has shown improvements in his defense. He has shown improvements in his strike placement, and he has shown improvement as far as his poise and his ability to create the openings he needs instead of just using his toughness and his aggression to force the openings that he needs. So I'd have to favor Kelvin Gastelum. He's seems like a more professional fighter. He seems like a more prepared fighter. And he seems like he's a little bit more disciplined and dedicated to expanding his skill set and addressing the holes that he has instead of just standing pat and figuring that the issue he has is more physical when it's actually a matter of technique and strategy. So if this fight goes on on Saturday, who do you see coming out as the victor? Uh, Given there's so many ifs and buts and wonders about Till I have to go with Gaslam. Gaslam's the more consistent guy. You know, it's like you have a basketball team that's showed them when they're supposed to. You know, they practice. You know, they're rested. You know, they went through their walkthrough. And you have another basketball team that was out partying till two in the morning, didn't have a walkthrough, barely woke up an hour and a half before the game, and didn't get a full night's rest. I have to go with the people who are more rested and who are more prepared because physically, I think Gaslam's a better athlete. I think Gaslam's got advantages in speed and explosiveness. Right now, I, unless Israel Adesanya has completely wrecked Kelvin Gastelum, which is possible, Gastelum should ha- have the advantage in durability. And Gastelum is more comp- more acclimated to being a middleweight than Till is. Till's first fight is a middleweight, and he's fighting one of the top three guys in there. So I- I'd have to lean Gastelum just based on the fact that he's more acclimated to the weight class. He's more established to the weight class. And even whether a welterweight or middleweight, he's he's fought better competition than Darren Till, and he's beaten better competition than Darren Till. So it's hard for me to find anything that Darren Till has a clear advantage of over him, except for the fact that Darren Till's a punishing fighter, and Gastelum might might be damaged goods from the Israel Adesanya fight. But by that by that logic, Darren Till might be damaged goods from bad weight cuts and knockouts or knockdowns at the hand of Tyrone Woodley and Jorge Masvidal and some of the other fights he's had. 
So I, I lend over, I lend, I lean on the side of Kevin Gastelum, who's been a little bit more consistent as a professional, a little bit more consistent as a fighter. Good one, good, good thoughts there, sir. There's a couple other fights, man. This card is pretty stacked. Um, Steven Thompson and, and Vicente Luque. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know too much about Luque. I'm not too, too, too familiar there with him. But talk to me about this fight here, sir, and, and what do you see? Uh, my concern for Steven Thompson is he still has enough athleticism to, in moments, have enough offensive volume and athletic burst to really punish guys for trying to counter him, to really punish guys for trying to walk in on him or impose their will on him or to try to put too much volume on him. And he's still got a unique enough style that most guys don't really know how to approach him because they approach him like a typical kickboxer and he's much more of a traditional martial artist, meaning he doesn't really have a lot of telegraph, telegraphing in his footwork, telegraphing in his strikes, telegraphing in his counters. So it's really hard to read him to defend or to counter whatever he's trying to do. And it's really hard to close a distance on him because he's very good at maintaining distance and making you pay a high price for every inch you try to take every inch of real estate you try to take in trying to get to him. It's like, it's like being at a club where they have a $50 cover charge. If you really, you want to get in this club, you got to pay, you got to pay a price. You got to show that you want to get in this club. You want to really get to Steven Thompson. You have to be willing to go through hell because he will chop up those knees your shins, your body, your face, your arms, your chest with straight linear kicks, kicks to the head, kicks to the body, long, long range punches to the face, the chest and the body. And he'll just chop you up, and make you pay a price. And if you're not willing to consistently pay that price, you're eventually going to slow down. He's going to keep you on the outside and he's just going to finish you or beat you up for three rounds. My concern with, with Steven Thompson is this. He's clearly declined as an athlete. He's not nearly as explosive as he used to be. He's not nearly as dynamic as he used to be. He doesn't move nearly as smoothly as he used to be. And more importantly, his chin, his durability, which I never thought was great, has taken a tremendous, tremendous step backward. He's been, he's had his bell rung more than once in fights recently. And against Anthony Pettis, who's a, who's a big hitter, but who isn't exactly knocking guys dead if lightweight, he got totally crushed. And we can talk about the positioning. One foot was off the ground. He was out of position. The fact of the matter is Anthony Pettis landed one clean shot and knocked him cold. Luke is a much bigger hitter. He's much more durable than Pettis. He's much more physically stronger. And at this stage, he's a better athlete than Pettis. And he's a better athlete than Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I can see, see Wonderboy winning this fight up until the point that he's not winning it. Now, the question for Luke is how much damage has been done to him psychologically and mentally from the fight he went through with Mike Perry. If he's still 100% and he's not really damaged or he hasn't suffered any setbacks, uh, I fully expect him to impose his will and to find some spot within that three rounds battle where he puts hands on Thompson, who isn't nearly as quick anymore, and he already has defensive issues due to his stance, his, his approach to striking, and, and to stop him. I, I fully expect him to stop him. He might get stopped trying to overstand. He might get stopped going for the finish, but I don't think Thompson's durability is there. And I don't think Thompson's ability to defend takedowns or to control where the fight takes, takes place at. I don't think it, it's a lead anymore. And I think he can easily be taken down and worked over a finish, or I think he can get caught on the feet either way. I I, think, I expect Luke to win and win rather than impressively. Have we seen the best of Steven Thompson? Like has that past him? Is he going to add, is he going to join that list of, great fighters that never earned a UFC um, title? 
Um, I don't know if he's the best. Um, he's just been he's so one dimensional in what he does. I can't say he's the best. There's whole fights that he's lost because he can't box at a mid range. He can't wrestle offensively. He he can't he can't put together kick punch pick kick punch combinations in a non traditional martial arts manner. I mean, he lost a fight against Woodley because he wouldn't he didn't he a didn't have the will to throw the volume because of the counters and b he didn't have the technical skill to get around Woodley's pretty one note counters because of the the approach the approach he has to striking. He, he's really a, a one note one dimensional fighter. He was very effective at that dimension, but when you look closer at his record, he beat a lot of guys who were on their way out. Jake Ellenberg, Johnny Hendricks, Jorge Masvidal is a good win. Um, who else did he beat? Uh, I mean, just a lot of these wins aren't really, if you really look at them closely, they're not really high-class elite wins. The way he won them makes him elite because they were finishes and they were very dynamic. But for the most part, look at who's on his list. The Robert Whitaker is a great win, but Nashawn Burrell... Chris Clemens, Jake Ellenberg, Johnny Hendricks. At the point Johnny Hendricks was at, he was barely making weight. He wasn't the same Johnny Hendricks. The Rory McDonald was a good win. And ever and after that, it was a lot a draw with Tyron Woodley, a loss to Tyron Woodley, a win over Jorge Masvidal, a loss to Darren Till, and a loss to Anthony Pettis. I mean, you look up and down his record, it's it's not the record of an elite fighter. That Cowboy Cerrone could make it as an elite fighter because he's beaten everybody except the champion. Um Stephen Thompson's just beaten a lot of guys, but not the champion. But he hasn't beaten everybody, and he hasn't beaten the best his division has to offer. Who are the big names he's had to fight in welterweight outside of Woodley and Whitaker? I mean, Masvidal just became Woodley and Whitaker. Masvidal just uh, became a name. Just Masvidal. Let me hold on one second because we always got to argue about these. Who has they? Who have they beaten? Arguments. Let me look. Um... That's that's you you question. you will look at it. And you'll be like, this is this is not this is gonna be hard for me to defend. I mean, because yeah, because uh, Whitaker is always the first name that comes to mind. Uh, Roy McDonald. Yeah, I mean the McDonald. I, I count that McDonald's a good win. Whitaker's a good win. Masvidal's a good win. But he's got like ten or eleven wins in the. He's got ten or eleven fights in the UFC, and only three of them are really anywhere near elite. Johnny Hendricks, I mean, you could count that when he knocked out Hendricks when Hendricks still has still has something to offer. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I thought Hendricks would win that fight, but but it's we when I rank out. a fight when when I rank a fight, yeah, he knocked him out. I rank a fighter based on what that fighter's accomplished and how that fighter comes back after that loss. Hendricks seemed to be on his way out, to be quite honest. He 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 never had a he never had a turnaround. He never got back on track. And that kind of takes away from the win. The win from Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. You beat a guy, you like he beat Roy McDonald. Roy McDonald went on to win the welterweight championship in Bellator. Okay, well look, he beat a guy who's still at his best afterwards. When he beat Johnny Hendricks, it became clear that Johnny Hendricks just wasn't the same guy. He doesn't have a lot of standout wins, and and recently he has more he has more losses than wins. You know, it, it's just I don't really think he's one of the best guys that ever won the championship, and I think a lot of it is because he's a fairly one dimensional limited striker he's not even a world-class striker he's just a very effective striker based on his style and the strategy that comes from it due to the distance management and the timing he has in it but he's a very incomplete striker who gets by on volume athleticism and a a unique and a a unique manner of striking not really because he's so technical or he's so durable or he's so strategically intelligent he just gets by on the event the natural advantages that that style generates and if you can neutralize those advantages he has nothing for you. 
and it's been exposed time and time again. Great thoughts there, sir. Good stuff. Let's move on because we got a couple other fights on this card here to talk about. We have Derek Lewis and Ivanov. Blagovi uh, Ivanov. I can't really say his name here. Did you see Lewis at, at, at the weigh-ins? The man is looking like he's fit. Did you see this? Yeah, I saw it. I'm, I'm kind of curious if... Uh, I'm kind of curious um, if that fitness is going to go against him. You know, sometimes you see a guy who's out of shape and they're just a great fighter and they get in shape and you're like, well, what happened to him? Like, they can't do the same thing. So I'm hoping it'll help him. But the fact of the matter is Derek Lewis's conditioning has never been an issue. Derek Lewis's issue is the fact that he can't initiate offense. Like his whole offense is based on him countering or him or him drawing you in so he can land a counter. He's got no structured system of, of putting together stable, consistent offense. He doesn't jab his way in. He doesn't use kick punch combinations. He doesn't really faint. He, he just kind of... You attack him, you attack him, and he loads up with a big shot and counters you. Or he jumps out at you with a big strike, you back up, and then you come in for the counter, and he beats you to the punch. Or he takes a beating, and then he lands a punch out of nowhere. His issue has never been conditioning. Not really. Everybody says it's conditioning, but really it's, it's his inability to wrestle offensively, and it's his ability to initiate offense, initiate offense consistently and in a structured manner. That's really what's held him back, more so than conditioning or his size or anything of that nature. It's, it's lack of skill. Okay, all right. I don't want to talk too much about that heavyweight fight, except for the idea that if he wins and Greg Hardy wins uh, in the next couple of weeks, they got to make that fight. They have to. If Greg fight. Hardy, if Greg Hardy wins his fight, you might not like him, but for a guy to go from the guys he's fighting to a legitimate top ten ranked UFC heavyweight and to beat him, man, I mean, I'm I still might I still not might not be cool with him, but I'm gonna have to give him his respect for that win if he gets it. Not likely yeah, he does. Yeah. But you you would have to respect him for that win. You would definitely have to respect all of, all of that. So um, there's that. And then I wanted to talk about a fight that really stands out to me that I don't I don't think is getting a lot of shine right now. Kevin Lee and Gregor Gillespie. This is a great fight to me, and I see Gregor Gregor coming out with the win here on Saturday. Yeah, uh, it's hard not to pick against them because he he's a very good wrestler. He he's a very physical and punishing grappler, an exhausting grappler. And the thing with Kevin Lee is Kevin Lee is a fighter who who has good skills, but he's convinced himself that he has great skills. He can convince himself he has great striking. He's convinced he has great wrestling. He is convinced he has great grappling. None of those things is true. He has good wrestling. He has effective, but but fairly one dimensional attribute based striking. And he's got pretty good pretty good grappling. But the only thing about it is. Kevin Lee, not only does he think his skills are better than he thinks they are, he thinks his athleticism is better than he thinks he is. He's not nearly as athletic, nor is he nearly as physical or dynamic as he thinks he is. And when he fights in the manner that he normally fights, what ends up happening is he exhausts himself, overextends himself, and finds himself in bad positions he can't get out of because he's broken himself down, forcing a pace, and trying to physically dominate fights when that's not really what he's built for doing. Recently, he's moved to Faraz Sahabi, which I'm hoping is going to add more structure to to what he's doing. Because Kevin Lee hit a plateau about two or three years ago, and he was beating up on lesser skilled, lesser athletic opponents and really thought he was getting better. And he wasn't getting better. He was fighting worse opposition. Then he fought Ally Aquinta again, and Ally Aquinta essentially beat him doing the same things that he did the first fight. And the same thing that happened in the first fight happened in the second fight. Lee was performing well enough early, 
He was defensively sloppy, got lax, paid a price, and then eventually just went on the defensive and had no way of turning the fight around. He had no structured counters, reactive takedowns, counter strikes, working in his way inside, getting clinch positions, faking high, going low, using strikes to open up grapplings and grappling to open up strikes. He had nothing as a plan B or plan C to get him back to his plan A where he can get control and work his plan A again. So I'm hoping in working with Zahabi, he's found a way to control the pace of the fight to essentially limit his opponent's opportunities to put him in bad positions or limit his opponent's opportunities to push the pace of the fight and actually make it a matter of quickness, intelligence, and versatility. Because if he can control the pace of the fight and not let Gregor get his momentum going and not let him make physicality be his calling card, he can beat him. He can beat him to the punch. He can outmaneuver him. He can kind of control him or, or neutralize him in spots for three rounds. But if his ability to control the pace and his ability to control the rhythm and break rhythm and break timing and use structured offense and poise and discipline offense isn't there, he, he's going to get walked down like he normally does, and he's going to get exhausted, and then he's going to get finished. He just doesn't have the physicality nor the durability to fight the way he's been fighting the majority of his career. And I don't know if one training camp with Zahabi is enough to fix it, but I'm hoping to see some signs that he's matured and he has a better sense of structure in what he's doing and not just trying to athlete himself through positions, force takedowns that aren't there, force striking exchanges that you don't hit hard enough to win, and um, and trying to be offensive when you're clearly outgunned and not mixing it up, using your full array of skills to cre create opportunities for you to get the work you need to get done. He, he's just fought really stupid fights. And if he fights stupid this time, he's going to get walked down and beat the fuck up. Where does this put him on the shortlist if Gregor wins where does this put him on the shortlist for a title shot I have to say Gregor's I wouldn't he's not a big enough name where I'd say he's close to he'd probably have to win another fight he'd probably have to beat a Gaethje who's not going to fight him or Tony Ferguson who's not going to fight him or Conor McGregor to really have a legitimate shot at, at Khabib Khabib Pat doesn't have a reason to think that Gregor is really on his level and Gregor doesn't have a fan base or hasn't had a big enough win to to force the UFC to have to put him in that position. I mean, no offense, if he beats Kevin Lee, what does that mean? That's who Ali Quinta got beat. beat. And Ali Quinta got his clock clean his last two fights. And then you have, uh, who else? RDA beat Kevin Lee. And RDA's been getting his, getting his clock clean at welterweight for last two or three fights. So beating Kevin Lee is impressive as it might be on a certain level. It isn't really impressive at all because all the guys who are elite beat Kevin Lee. And they beat him fairly decisively. If the fight's tough and, and Gregor wins, uh, that tells me more about where Gregor is as far as how good an athlete he is and how how much he's grown as an actual mixed martial arts fighter. If he's who he thinks he is, he might ha have a competitive round against Lee, but he's going to take over later in the first round, early in the second, and finish. If it's a back-and-forth fight throughout three rounds, Gregor is clearly not ready for the level of, the level of competition he thinks he is. Good thoughts there, sir. Let's cover a couple other fights. Corey Anderson and Johnny Walker. Um, I think Walker's going to take this. I've never been a big fan of, of Corey Anderson, but I'm looking at Walker as him having a breakthrough moment, especially with that 205 lightweight title shot, or two, light heavyweight title shot being so wide open. What are your thoughts about this here? Um, as far as Walker goes, I think he's a better athlete. I think he's dynamic in spots. 
I think even though he doesn't have the wrestling pedigree of a Corey Anderson, I think he's explosive enough in his offense and explosive enough in certain positions on the ground that at least early on in the fight, he won't be easily controlled. You won't just be able to take him down. If you take him down, he'll be able to get back up. And if you, even if you get try to get him in certain positions, he will punish you to the body, punish you with, with some explosive shot that's going to either dissuade you from getting a takedown or damage your ability to maintain position if you get it. Um, the best thing about Corey Anderson is he's consistent. He works at a high rate. He's very physical, and he stays on guys. And, and he just go p- puts his nose to the grindstone, and he outworks you, outhustles you, breaks you down, and pulls away from the fight late. That's great because against a guy like Walker, who picks his spots offensively, he also, when he's not offensively a threat, he's also defensively not very safe, which means Corey's going to have a chance to rack up points, to put some miles on that odometer, to chip away at him. The bad part about that is Corey Anderson does not have the athleticism or the dynamic skill to just land one or two shots and put a fighter away or land something flashy and, and win around. So he's going to have to constantly put himself at harm's risk to win a close fight, much less a dominant fight. And if you have to be right in the middle of the flame to get what you need to get, there's a severe chance you're going to get burned and burned badly. So he's going to have to constantly expose himself to Walker's explosiveness, his length, and his power to have a chance to outwork him, to have a chance to put him in those bad positions, to have a chance to grind into him and pull away late. He's going to have to expose himself to that. And if Walker catches him something early, it's not beyond the realm to see Corey Anderson get finished. He's been finished before dynamically so as a result of constantly pushing a pace, constantly trying to chip away at somebody, constantly trying to wear them down. And secondly, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't get finished, if he gets behind on points, Corey Anderson isn't a guy who's going to take risks trying to land something flashy for one. And B, he doesn't have the athleticism to turn a fight around with 30 seconds left or two minutes left. That's not who he is. For him to win, he's got to force you into mistakes and then go from A, B, C, D to E to capitalize on the mistake. He can't jump from A to E. He does not that kind of athlete. He can't jump from A to E. He's not that kind of technician. He has to go through every single step to get to where he needs to go. And every step along the way against somebody like a Walker or a guy like a Dominic Reyes, you are in danger of being severely hurt or finished. So it's going to be hard for me to think that Corey Anderson can navigate three whole rounds, putting the pressure on, throwing lots of volume, seeking these grappling exchanges without paying some kind of price against a guy who's such a better athlete and knows that Corey Anderson really only has one way to win, and that's to come to him. Corey Anderson takes fights off the back foot, it's problems. Corey Anderson tries to stay at range and outbox them, oh, we know something's going wrong. It's problems. He really has one way to win this fight. So Walker knows exactly what to expect from Corey Anderson. Corey Anderson has no idea what to expect from Walker as far as how he's going to approach winning this fight. Do you think Walker gets the title shot if he wins on Saturday? Uh, mm, I just don't know. I just don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I think given over Reyes, yeah, I, I'd say so. A, a win over Corey Anderson is much more valuable than a win over Chris Whiteman. Um, so yeah, I I'd probably say he gets. I, I'd say he gets in position. Uh, hearing John Jones saying he's not very excited about fighting anybody for the title. Is kind of concerning, but um, I'd say it puts him in the. I put, think it puts him in the driver's seat as far as who's next. Say that last part again. I said I, I would think it puts him. It puts him uh, in the in the driver's seat as far as as far as quality of wins, and especially if he beats Corey Anderson. I think that's an impressive enough win to to propel him to a title shot. 
True, true. Uh, one other fight I want to talk about, this also includes title ramifications, Jennifer Maya and Caitlin Chukagian. Big fight here as well. Caitlin Chukagian is widely considered the number one um, contender for the uh, women's strawweight title, right? Strawweight? Featherweight. Flyweight. Excuse me, goodness. And Maya's a hot prospect. A lot of people are kind of looking forward to her as well. What do you think about this fight here? I think Maya's the bigger athlete. Uh, the harder hitting one has more offensive skills as far as all round. She's probably the better grappler, probably the better offensive wrestler. And um, the biggest question with her is, is she going to be able to make weight? The last fight she didn't, and this is an important fight, so I'm hoping that she does. But once you fail to make weight, it's always a question from that point on in your career. Are you going to make weight and be prepared to, uh, to go to war? Um, I would say Maya has the advantage because Maya was considered a higher-ranked lightweight. I think she's faced better competition. I think she has more ways to win the fight. I think she's more physically durable. I think she hits harder. I think she's a better wrestler and a better grappler. Um, I don't know that she's a better striker than Chukagian, but as far as offensive effectiveness, I'd probably say she's a better striker. She's a more effective striker, maybe not, an, maybe not a more technical striker, but she's a more effective one. The, the question is, one, does she make weight? And two, does she have enough discipline in how she's fighting to fight the right fight to create the openings necessary to fight Chukagan? Chukagan to me is like a, a smaller version of Holly Holm. She moves around a lot. She throws a lot of volume. She's not terribly accurate. She's not a terribly great striker with her hands. She's better with her feet. She, but she throws a lot of volume. She does not land a lot. She moves a lot. And she works at a high pace. And a lot of her success is a combination of her activity her athleticism and the variety of strikes that she throws, whether they land or not, the variety of strikes that she throws um, gives her a certain amount of success on the feet and kind of forces her opponents to be more aggressive. And then they come towards her and that, that creates the collision she needs for those counter shots. But as much as she throws and as much variety as she throws and as much experience as she's, she has as a striker, the fact of the matter is she's not very defensively sound. She's not hard to hit. Um, she's not a great technical counter striker and for all the offense she throws, like I said, she's not very consistent or efficient in which she throws. She misses a lot. So if I'm Maya, I'm going to get her to the cage. I'm going to punish the legs. I'm going to punish the body and I'm going to seek to counter counter to take into the body and line her up for that overhand strike Cause she doesn't move her head off the line when she strikes either. So there's a real definite avenue to victory for Maya. For Chukagan, the avenue to victory just isn't very clear because she's not going to bully her. I don't believe she's going to take her down and control her. I don't believe she's going to submit her. Her only way of winning the fight is to outland her and to possibly knock her out on the feet. And Chukagan hasn't shown the accuracy to do so, nor has she shown the power. She'll make it hard for you because she moves around so much and because she throws so much, but she doesn't really do a lot of damage. And physically, at this weight class, I thought she'd have some physical advantages, but she's been bullied by fighters, even at this weight class. And she's been hurt by fighters, even at this weight class. So I fully expect Jennifer Maya to win and for Chukagan to once again be the bridesmaid in regards to potentially getting a title fight. Um, I think she has enough skill set to get a title fight eventually if she cleans up a couple things. But given the style she has, it's going to be really hard because it's been so successful. I don't think she has much of a reason to adjust to it. And secondly, I think her style actually is no good against 
a girl who's a world-class striker and a world-class counterpuncher and a world-class athlete in Valentina Shevchenko. I don't think she has much to offer to Shevchenko based on how she fights. So um, I, it's an important fight, but I, I think it's going to be similar to the Jessica I fight. I think it's going to be a little bit more decisive for Maya, unless Maya, once again, is totally checked out or doesn't make weight. I expect Maya to win and, to, and do so fairly impressively. It might be close for a little bit. She may never land the shot she wants to land to really put the stamp on the fight, but I fully expect her to win the fight and and do so fairly impressively. Interesting thoughts there, sir. Interesting thoughts. Um, what else stands out on this card? UFC 244. Is there anything else that you would like to highlight? Uh, let me think one second. Let me double check on that because I was thinking about it. I think that took all the really, really important fights. Let me just double check. Um, nah, I think I think that's about it. A lot of these fights are once again it's good fights, but it's not necessarily fights that are going to be determining the the shape of the divisions in the next couple years or so. Okay, all right. Let's answer. We got one question this week that kind of ties back to the main event of UFC 244. Are there any other fighters in the UFC that can call their own shot and force the promotion's hand, kind of like the way? Nate Diaz did when it came to the Yasada deal. And looking at the roster right now, the answer is no. I will say that the only other people that could have been able to do that were Ronda Rousey, Brock Lesnar, uh, Connor at a time, and maybe GSP back in the day. What do you think? Um. I don't really, I don't really think there is anybody. Um, nobody. Everybody else is on date. Gets on Dana's good side, and he lets him, he lets them feel like they can call some shots until they piss him off, and he pulls the rug out from underneath him, and then they ain't calling nothing. I really think, uh, yeah, Nate Nate Diaz is probably about it right now. A lot of guys who say say they call their own shot, but they really, I think Nate Diaz is just about it right now. What about Nick? What if he came back? Do you think he has cachet still, or 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 no? I think he has cachet. He's a big enough star that anything he shows up on is going to be a huge seller. So they'll they'll kowtow to him to a certain degree. But uh, like I said, he's not an active fighter. So I guess you could say to a certain degree, BJ Penn did, because even though he's losing, he kept getting ranked fighters, and there's no way that should have been happening. There's no way he should have been getting some of the fights he had, to be quite honest, for the better part of eight fights. He was, he was, getting, he was getting some prime matchups. He didn't win them, but he was getting matchups he, we know he didn't deserve. So, outside of that, no. I don't think anybody else has any ability to call any shots. I guess maybe Khabib might, if he, if he chose to flex that muscle, he might have it. But outside of that, nah. There ain't nobody. All right, sir. So, why don't we um, talk about what we're uh, working on this week? Before, before, I just wanted to, I wanted to have a brief conversation about the uh, Ben Askren, the Ben Askren fight uh, really oh, quick. Ahead. Oh, I, yeah, I we didn't say, talk about that from last weekend. I'm not the biggest fan of Ben Askren, but every time he's he's lost in some humiliating fashions, getting finished by Damian Maya, while it's not embarrassing at the age Damian Maya is, and the fact that Damian Maya's been getting beat up by wrestlers for an extensive period of time, it, it, it could be fairly embarrassing for a guy who talks like Ben Askren does. Well, and to get knocked on, out be, like before you go on, I want to talk about that though, because yes, he's been losing to wrestlers, but none of those wrestlers I have been willing to stay on the mat with. Damian Maya. That's the risk that Askren took that Tyron Woodley did not take. 
Um, Kamara Usman did not take. Kobe Covington did not take. I was actually looking at that fight, um, the numbers behind the fight on Saturday and the other recent Maya fights. In those three bouts, he did not score any takedowns, and he barely was able to even attempt any because they stayed, they kept him off of him. Ben Askren took a risk, and he took a risk going to the ground and staying there with Damian Maya, and, and he paid for it. No, uh, no, that, that, that's another thing. Um, he he took a risk, believing in himself, believing he's a certain caliber grappler, and and he was summarily submitted. And that that's kind of embarrassing for a guy with his ego, his his sense of self. And the loss to Jorge Masvidal, I can't imagine how embarrassing that was to him, especially when you look at that that little video they have where he was there was some kind of fan walking up to him saying, "If you try to take me down, I would just knee you to the body into the face." And then literally a day and a half, everybody's like, "Oh, that guy's a drunk." Ben would have kicked his ass, and a day and a half later, he tries to take someone down and gets knee to the face and gets knocked out. Everybody forgot about that. I didn't. I was like, that guy said, if you try to clinch me up, take me down, I would just knee you and finish you. It was like, he's a drunk. He doesn't know what he does. Oh, oh, you just knee a world-class wrestler. Yeah, that's what you do. You just knee a world-class wrestler. That, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. A drunk, cocky fan told him what was going to happen, let him in on Jorge's blueprint, and he ignored it, and then he got... Ice by the same thing he was warned about a day and a half later. I find that tremendously funny. But um, Ben's been really world. He's been really legit about how he's handled this. He hasn't whined about it. He hasn't made excuses. He's owned it. He didn't pull a Ronda Rousey. He hasn't pulled with a lot of fighters. Oh, you know this and that. And I, I felt bad. I was sick. I I was exhausted. I had a bad headache. He just said I lost. I I think I'm the best, but I was not the best at that time. I feel like I'm the best. I clearly was not the best this night. And I have to tip my hat to that guy. And for that, I am very impressed by him because to be in the career he's in, you have to kind of lie to yourself to keep going. And he seems to not have any issue being very honest with the realities of what he's done, win or lose. And I find that very refreshing, given how most fighters respond. Um, uh, I think he got brought to the UFC at a time where he was already on the decline. And that played some part in his lack of success in the UFC. Because Ben Askren is a guy who lacks athleticism. He's not a very good athlete. I know you're thinking, Olympic caliber wrestler, how is he not a good athlete? He's just not. He's a very unique style of wrestling as far as the rhythm, the timing, and the cadence of it, and, and the style he uses. But as far as pure athleticism, he's not very explosive. In my opinion, he's not explosively strong. He's not very dynamic. And that lack of... that mean, He's on the physical decline. So any athleticism he had, which wasn't much, has already declined, which means he's even at a bigger disadvantage facing the guys in the UFC. And I think that's really been the biggest difference on the feet. Even though he's not very good technically, if he had some kind of athleticism, he could generate enough power to be a threat, to do some kind of damage. But he can't. And even on the ground, when he's put in a bad spot or he's in a good spot, he lacks the athleticism to really punish guys like, really punish them, not beat them up over the period of time through attrition, but really just to t- turn a fighter's lights out or really bust them up or cut them up with damage from the top position or to, or to improve position from the bottom position. So I, I feel like he wasn't given the... We didn't get the best version of Ben Askren. We got the best version of what Ben Askren had left, and it wasn't nearly good enough to compete at this level, especially when you factor in the fact that he's not a dynamic athlete and he doesn't seem particularly... If not physically, he can take a lot of punishment. Mentally, he's not a, he's not in a space where he's willing or able to take a lot of punishment. That's what lost. That's what led to the loss against Maya. He was getting touched up on the feet, 
and he went for the takedown. You could say it was his confidence and his ground skills. Fact of the matter is he didn't like the fact he was getting hit so much on the feet. He wasn't winning those exchanges. He was throwing a lot, but he wasn't winning those exchanges, so he sought to escape those exchanges like he always does and went to the ground with a guy you can't go to the ground with. And um, his inability to control the fight on the ground, his inability to maintain top position or and to really punish Maya was stunning to me. I, I really expected him to be able to assert position. I figured he'd go for something crazy, look for a submission. It wasn't that at all. Maya just got him off him. He could not maintain top position on Maya. He, he just couldn't. And part of that is Maya's grappling being tailored to exploit holes in Askren's, Askren's wrestling style. Part of that is Askren just doesn't have the physical horsepower to power someone down and really rough them up. Colby Covington has it. Kamar Usman does. Even Tyrone Woolley does to an extent. Ben Askren doesn't. He has the uniqueness of his style, and he has the elite-level skill of his style. If those two things aren't enough, he's just not as effective a wrestler or as effective a fighter as he's been made out to be. Now, maybe at one point he was that guy, but given his lack of improvement as a fighter technically and his lack of creativity strategically, his, his, his one-dimensional style, even though it's wrestling, and Joe Rogan says that's the most effective style out there, it's, it's not enough, and it was never going to be enough coming into the UFC. And ever since he's been in there, from the Lawler fight to the Maya fight, he's never, looking like, he's never looked like a world beater. In fact, he's looked more and more vulnerable in each and every fight he's been in. And I just think we got Ben Askren at the wrong time. But even if he was at his best, the, the ceiling on his skill set was always going to make him dominating at a high level in the UFC nearly impossible. I don't, I don't, I don't know how he would have got past Johnny Hendricks or Tyron Woodley or Jared St. Pierre at their peak. I don't, know, I don't know that he gets past Ty- Carlos Condit at his peak, given how susceptible he is to strikes and misdirection. So um, I wasn't surprised by the loss, but I was surprised by how physically shot he looked and how poorly his his ability to use all ranges of mixed martial arts were to give it how long he's fought. You'd figure his striking would be a little bit better. You'd figure he'd have better entries. He'd be more creative in his entries and he'd be more effective in scrambles on the ground. And he just, he didn't show much of all. He didn't show much of anything. I, I just was not very impressed by him on the ground and I wasn't very impressed with him on the feet. And, um, you know, this is probably very hard for him to hear, but he, he probably is close to retirement and he probably should, think very long and hard about fighting another career. He's won titles. He was a top-ranked fighter. I, I just don't think he's capable of performing at that level, given his physical decline and given the lack of progression in his style. And I'd like to send a shout-out to the Fight site. Uh, they're an MMA writing site. They did a wonderful article pre and post Maya Askren that really covered a lot of bases in depth and was very blunt in their assessment. assessment. And, I, and I, it's something that I make reference to in giving you my assessment on it. But, um, yeah, I, I was just kind of stunned by it. And I, I feel at this point, 1SD won this trade-off. And Ben Askren's done a little bit of do- harm to his legacy as an MMA fighter because people always said what he had wasn't enough. And by the time he got to the UFC, he didn't even have the athleticism or the growth to maximize the skills he has. And he's pretty much been exposed from day one in the UFC against the best opposition he's faced, he's pretty much been exposed. He has not looked dominant at any point in his time in the UFC. True, true. Good, good thoughts there, sir. Um, I am working on, you know, covering UFC, covering wrestling as I usually do. 
Um, it's another week. You know, there's a lot of content to be written out there. Stay tuned for a piece I'm working on actually tonight. Hopefully we'll have it up about the the BMF piece. So um yeah, that's all I got. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Please be sure to ca- catch us on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, SoundCloud, iTunes, everywhere you can catch us there at MMA Ratings Net. You can also go to that website to rate the fights, let us know how excited you are about the fights as they come up and right after they end. So as always, I'm I'm Rafael Garcia. You can catch me at R Garcia underscore sports. That's Shawan Humes. You can catch my Black Jordan Breen. And thank you all for listening to us this week. We'll be back next week to talk more MMA. Have a great night, everyone. Be safe. Thanks, Happy holidays. Yeah.